Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, which is also found on page 8 of your bulletin. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the word of the Lord. It's a beautiful passage, beautiful text. It's often used in weddings, but it wasn't originally intended for weddings. It wasn't originally intended uh, the way we often look at the text. The Apostle Paul, the author who actually wrote this text, wrote it in the context of talking about change. Change. We're beginning a new series. It's a two-week series, a mini-series on the core values of Metro Presbyterian Church. And one of our core values is about community. What is community? What does it mean to have genuine community because of the gospel in our church? And we all want to see change, and that's what this is about, the marks of a transformed community. We all want to see change, but change is hard. That's the problem. Most change in our lives is the result of some form of moral restraint, behavioral modification. We tend to threaten each other in a casual or or subtle way, with punishment or retribution, the silent treatment. I remember a story about a couple. They were entering into marital counseling. And the wife pretty much had it. The wife said, you know what, I'm leaving him. I'm leaving my husband. And the husband says, no, no, I'll do anything. I'll do anything to change. Whatever it is that you want me to do. I'll spend more time with the children. I'll spend more time with you. I'll work less. You know, I'll do whatever it takes. And so he does for a while. And then he snaps back. And after he snaps back, we enter into this vicious cycle. They enter into marital counseling again. The wife says, I've had it. I'm going to leave him. And the husband says, no, 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 I'm going to change. I'm going to change. And he does. And then he snaps back. It's this endless cycle, this pattern of moral restraint and snapping back. We all try to change. We all try to change with willpower. Just when we think we got it. Just when we think we're getting it, we snap back. It's very true. Even among Christians. It's very true. How does change become permanent? How does change last without just willpower? And in this passage, Paul's showing us, one of the truths that he's showing us is that it's very easy to mistake a morally restrained heart from a heart that's been supernaturally changed or transformed because of the gospel. It's easy to uh, to mistake a heart that's been morally restrained Versus a heart that's been supernaturally changed. And that's what he's talking about here. Paul's showing us the distinct quality of what a changed heart, a transformed heart looks like. So two points today. Two points. What change isn't, very simple, right? What change isn't and what change is. What it isn't and what it is. Now how you get it. First, we're going to go into what it isn't, what change isn't. And we see it in two parts, uh, verses 1 to 2, and then we're going to look at verse 3. First, verse 1 to 2, 
going to read very briefly. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith, all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing, he says. He says, I am nothing. In other words, change isn't the same as our acts of service or just an active life of service. Change, you know, change isn't that. Love isn't that. Verses 1 to 2, Paul, what does he do? He makes a list of four things. He says, these are four things that I can often do, but if I do these four things and do not have love, not demonstrating love, if I do not have love, he says, I'm nothing. He says, I am nothing. He first mentions tongues and prophecy, artistic gifts, these gifts of the Spirit, he says. In other words, uh, and then he, well, then he goes into, he says, then if I can fathom all mysteries, what he, what he means by that, he says, if I can really understand, if I'm, if I'm a teacher, if I can really understand and teach the Bible well. He says, the fourth thing, if I have visionary faith, a faith that can remove mountains, a, a faith that can move mountains, an inspiring faith. He's talking about artistic, scholarly or academic, or visionary faith. Visionary leadership. He's talking about our gifts, the things that we're talented in. And it makes sense because the Corinthian church was filled with talented people. Corinth as a city in the Roman Empire was the urban financial center of the world at that time. So the church was filled with talented, intelligent, uh, gifted people. It was grow- the church there was growing. It was filled with people who were serving, filled with people who were active in service. And Paul is saying here that it's possible to have talent. It's possible to have artistic, academic, visionary, biblical talent. You could be a teacher. You could be serving. You could be a counselor. And you could do all these things without love. Can you believe that? You could do all these things, but not out of a heart of love, You could be teaching in the church. You could be serving in the church. You could be counseling in the church and yet not have love. Not out of love. Not out of a changed heart. Not out of, just out of moral restraint. Paul makes this list. Why do you think Paul makes this list in verses 4 to 7? He goes into what love is, right? He's giving us a list of everything that the people in Corinth were not. He's giving us a list of everything that the people in the big city were not. City folk. They were impatient. They're unkind. We're not like that anymore, right? Right? We're un- they were unkind. They were pushy. They were envious, jealous. They were boastful. They were arrogant. They were rude. They were condescending, strong-willed. They were irritable. They were resentful at times, bitter. They loved doing wrong. They rejoiced when they did wrong. They lied. They were gifted people. I mean, these people started the nonprofits in their societies. These were the people that uh, really helped the poor. They had a heart for the poor. They served in politics, but their character and their attitude, they were prickly, they were argumentative, they were gossiping, and they were arrogant. We live in a very similar urban culture, don't we? What really counts in an urban culture like ours? We look to the intelligent. We look to the people. We just pursue what is best. We want to be the best. 
We want to be productive. And, you know, so what if we have, colorful, some of us have colorful personalities, you know, we all have flaws, everybody's got flaws. Ty Cobb, one of the greatest baseball players of all time, throughout his career, he was marked, you know, by his flaws, and yet his flaws were easily overlooked because of his talent. Um, Shirley Povich, he's a, he used to be a columnist for the Washington Post, he's the late Shirley Povich, actually, a columnist for the Washington Post, in 1995, wrote an amazing article, actually, about Ty Cobb, uh, based on a book that was coming out and a movie, actually, that was coming out at the time. Here's what he writes. <clears throat> Ty Cobb was, indeed, a vicious, demonic fiend who took to the ball field every day with blood, not his own, in his eye. And how he cut and ravaged and savaged his way to 90 records that he put in baseball's archives. Yes, the greatest player of all time was baseball's preeminent, unconscionable scoundrel. Off the field, he was often an instant heel who beat up on waiters and bartenders and any civilians he conjectured as unfriendly, including any in the grandstands. But it is also a truth that in the 90 years since that teenage Georgia youth broke in with the Detroit Tigers, the game has never seen his equal in baseball skills. Young Cobb reinvented the game for himself and proved he could slash and, and cut his way around the bases and intimidate and win 12 American League batting titles. The Apostle Paul writes here, who cares how productive you are? Who cares how smart you are? Who cares how wealthy you are? Who cares how looked upon, how well looked upon you are? He says you are filled with insecurity and anger and pride and jealousy and you have a superiority complex and that's why you're doing that. You're stepping all over people to get the things done that you want to get done. Anybody who stands in your way, you move aside. God says, my kingdom advances not through subversion, but through conversion. So this kind of character, this kind of character is no value. No value to me in my kingdom. In other words, Paul is saying it's possible to have little grace in the heart, yet be very successful in ministry, in serving. I'm, ta- I'm a pastor. I think ministry is filled with narcissistic people. The church pastors are some of the most narcissistic people in the world. That's what I've seen. And, and you can be very successful with very good intentions. Very good intentions. You can give a lot of your heart and yet have given so little of your heart, maybe none of your heart to God. That's what Paul's saying here. And says, to that, no matter what you've done, no matter how productive you've been, no matter what you've accomplished, even in the church, Paul says, you are nothing. Nothing. It counts for nothing. Actually, he doesn't even say you count for nothing. He says, you are nothing. In Matthew, in the book of Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus says, he tells a story. He says, some people are going to come to me at the end of the days, and they're going to say to me, Lord, Lord, with emotional content, because there's the doublet. He says, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these things? And he says, go away. My response to them will be, go away. I never knew you. I never knew you. How can a person be a great preacher? How can a person in the church where God's Spirit is, is helping people through them, and yet they don't know God? How can that be possible? And yet we know, of course it could happen. Of course it could happen. Because if pride and self-centeredness, you know, if these things are at the center of our hearts, God will use you. God can certainly use you 
but that doesn't mean that he's with you. Does that make sense? It's scary. Incredibly scary. <laughs> That's very scary. That's what he says in verses 1 to 2. In verse 3, Paul teaches us that a changed heart is also not the same as a socially involved or a morally committed heart. A socially involved or a socially committed life. I'm going to read verse 3 here. He says, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. He says, if I have all these gifts, I am nothing. But he says, if I give everything that I have, he says, if I, if I surrender my body to the flames, I still gain nothing. That's what he says here. He's talking about, this time he's talking about virtues. He's talking about generosity. Paul gives us this mini list. Good virtues. Examples of a morally or socially committed heart. He says, on one hand, if you give everything away to the poor, everything you've got to the poor, some would call this a liberal virtue, a social justice virtue, right? You have a heart, you're burdened by the oppressed, you're burdened by the broken, you're burdened by the poor. Um, what you have here is somebody who's so committed to the poor that he gives away just about everything he has voluntarily, voluntarily. So he's voluntarily living in poverty. He's given away most of everything that he's had. He says, that's virtuous. He's acknowledging that this is virtuous. Where he says, if I give her, deliver my body to be burned, surrender my body to the flames, he's referring to what? People who are dying for their faith. In those days, particularly in those days, America, we have, a, we have somewhat of a freedom to worship, but in those days you did not, not at all, not explicitly at least. And he says those people were surrendered to the flames. He says, if I deliver my body to the flames without love, some will call that a traditional or conservative virtue. He says it's virtuous, but I've gained no spiritual currency for my life, no gain. It's not valuable. It amounts to zilch in the kingdom of God. In other words, a supernaturally changed heart leads to a morally committed life. It leads to these things, social justice, but not the other way around. A committed life to social justice will not lead to a supernaturally changed life. That's what he's saying. It's an amazing thing. It's a scary thing. Paul says, if you're like this, if you're like this, if I'm like this, I'm a resounding gong. I'm a clanging symbol. What does that mean? He was referring to the worship that took place in those ancient times, in the various temples throughout the city of Corinth. There were places of worship, and there they would have these resounding gongs. But where did the sound go? Who were they praying to? He says, mainly what these people did, there would be this great worship processional, and people would walk. It was basically like a parade. You ever been a part of a parade? You'd walk this parade and these gongs would be resounding and the cymbals would be clanging and these people would be doing this to honor the gods, to get their attention, to win their approval. And Paul says, some people use their deeds. Some people use their talents. Some people use their gifts and their intellect. Some people sacrifice to justify why they feel, why they feel they should be acceptable before God. And he says, you're not acceptable. You are not acceptable. That's what he says. So you could be helping people. When you're helping people, you may overtly be doing it to help people. You may overtly, because you, you say, you know, just in that one level deeper in the heart, have a, a brokenness, even some compassion for the poor. But covertly, if you've not been supernaturally changed, 
He says, even underneath your own personal knowledge of yourself, you're actually doing it, not for other people, but at the heart, you're doing it for yourself. You're a resounding gong. You're just trying to get God's attention. That's what you're doing. You're not doing it to have more of God, but to get more from God. You're not, to get, you're not doing it to get to, because you've experienced the love of God, but so that you can win or earn God's love. Does that make sense? And he says, that is an utter insult to God. It rejects God. So how do you tell? How do you tell the difference? How do you tell the difference? How, do you, how can you look at yourself? He says, the telltale sign between someone who's morally committed and active in helping out, in a broad sense, you know, doing it for himself is this. You know, the telltale sign that you're actually doing it for yourself and not for others, deeply, genuinely for others, is this. You're rude. You push people aside who get in your way. You complain all the time. You know, when you, you know the holiest times, probably, at least explicitly, are when we're seated. But the unholiest time sometimes in worship is right after worship when you get into your car. And all the thoughts of all the people who annoyed you during worship today. Maybe it was me. Maybe, maybe it was each other or one another. Or maybe just preoccupied with something that just didn't go right, didn't go your way. You know, and, and that creates abrasiveness, irritableness, you know, gossip and envy. You're just constantly critical, constantly complaining. You're grumbling about one another. You're insecure. Sometimes we're very anxious, you know, or we're jealous because we've seen something today. Um, or we're just, we're just built up in anger or pride or, or depressed. We came in depressed and we're walking away depressed. And this is underneath. It's not like we're showing it on our faces. This is underneath the morality. This is underneath all the goodness. This is underneath our moral, active, serving lives. For example, here's a good example. How do we teach children to be honest as an example and not to lie? How do we teach our children to be honest? You know, here's how we usually teach our children not to lie. We use two tools. Two tools naturally comes with us since we were born. We use fear and pride. With fear, we teach this. You say, you got to be honest. You got to be honest because you're going to get caught if you're dishonest. I will find out because I'm smarter than you. <laughs> I will, the jig's going to be up and you better, you better listen and, and be honest and to your teacher. You, be, you better be uh, honest to the police. You better be honest to God. You better be honest to me. And in that particular order, your teacher, police, God, and me, okay? Lying doesn't pay because you're going to get found out. Lying doesn't pay. If you lie, it won't pay for you because you will pay a deeper price. That's fear, the fear of getting caught. But uh, the, the other way that we, the other tool that we tend to use is pride. You know, you better tell the truth because look at that person. You know he doesn't tell the truth. Look at your father. He's a liar. Sometimes we get harsh, right? Or, or look at him. You know, do you want to be like him? You know he's a liar. He lies all the time. Do you want to be like that? Do you want to grow up like that? We use pride. You're better than that. You're better than that. Don't, don't look at them. Don't. We scoff at our liars, the, the people we know that are liars. We get children to disdain liars. Fear and pride, that's how we do it. And at the root of that is what? At the root of fear and pride is an inward look 
at ourselves, self-centeredness, self-absorption. It teaches people to look down on other people, to step all over them. When people will get caught, you look down on them. Ah, you got caught. I'm not going to get caught. Or when people lie, you say, I don't want to be like that. We're stepping all over people. We're looking at ourselves as either better than them or the fear of looking worse than them. That's what we're doing. And that's why we bring down politicians. And that's why we bring down pastors. And that's why we bring down our leaders. The world encourages self-centeredness. We're a resounding gong. Me, me, me. Look at me. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. I'm better than him or I'm not getting caught. You know, and um, look how good I look. That's what we're doing. It's out of fear of pride all the time. And so what we're doing, raising our children, you know what we tend to do? We tend to enhance the self-centeredness. And then what we do is we turn it around on them. We enhance the self-centeredness through fear and pride. And then we, we, we manipulate them with fear and pride. And then we try to control them with fear and pride. And later on, you know what they do? It comes right back around. Initially, that fear and pride is used to prevent lying until they realize that there are greater consequences when you don't lie in their lives. Because what we built in them is a self-centeredness. So what they do is they value. Well, the whole reason for the fear and pride is because I'm afraid to lose approval until a greater thing that can gain its approval arises. And the consequence of not obeying that thing is greater than the fear and the pride. And what we do is that's how we start to lie again. The lie becomes greater. You know, the consequence of not lying becomes greater than the consequence of lying. You know? And they're going to snap back. And in their 20s, the consequences aren't that great. And as they reach their 30s, the consequences get greater. And then you hit your 40s, and the consequences are devastating. Corrosive in the soul. Corrosive. These things will devastate you. In the short run, people can be moral. But underlying that morality is what? A deep immorality. We're giving ourselves socially, morally. We're committed. You know? But we're so alone. And you know what that aloneness does? It creates this sense of self-pity. You know? Tim Keller calls it a majestic self-pity that we develop. Oh, nobody understands what I go through. What I do, do, do they understand what I experience in my role, with my power? You would never understand this. And then when the right opportunity comes, and the circumstances change, and the self-absorption starts to lead you, you start to say, I deserve this. I deserve this. And Paul says, that is deadly for our souls. This is why the virtue list, you know, that virtue list, we just try to be kind, if we try to be patient, that virtueless, it can happen out of inner emptiness just as much as it can happen out of an inner fullness. You can be kind for a while. You can be patient for a while out of an inner emptiness just as much as an empty fullness, an inner fullness. In Matthew chapter 5, this is the reason why Jesus says, you need a righteousness that is greater than the Pharisees. The Pharisees are saying, What? I obey 635 laws on a daily basis to stay right. And Jesus says, you need a righteousness that is greater than that. A greater righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. Something that's greater than moral goodness. You know why? It's because the Pharisees, they were morally committed people. They were morally righteous people. They were morally committed. They were morally sacrificial. They were obedient, good people. Now, how do you then get it? What is, what is love? 
What is, what does it mean to, be, to have a changed heart? How do you get this alien righteousness? Verses 4 to 7. The second half of this text, Paul goes through the list. Let's read this list. Verses 4 to 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul uses transitive verbs. Now, without going into the grammar, you know, I'm teaching us about grammar today, you know, basically a transitive verb is a verb that has an object at the end. You know, so you're doing something for or to somebody or something, right? It's an, there's an object to this verb. It's an action word that's personified because in reality only people can do these things, right? But he says love does this. Love is this. Paul personifies love. He says, he doesn't say love is doing, love is being patient. That's not what he says. He says love is patient. Love is kind. The actual word here, love is long-suffering. Love is kind. Love is a personal, active force that lives in a very particular way in our lives. In other words, what he's saying is you can't try to do this. There's, at your best, at your best, you could never do this. That's what he's saying. You can't morally restrain yourself to be this. You can't just do it. You only do this when you experience it. It's personified. You have to experience it To you, you have to be the object of the love. You have to meet love. Think about this. If you just try to love, if you just try to do verses 4 to 7, what happens? If you see it as just a set of rules, initially, you say, you know, most of us, I bet when we studied this, we say, well, I could probably be more patient because I think I'm a pretty kind person. You know, I, sometimes I boast, but I'm not that envious you know, we, it's a menu list, of th- a checklist for us of things that we've, we're pretty good at, things that we need to work on. And Paul says, if you live like that and grow like that, you will, it will devastate your life. It will break you and you will, the corrosion will continue. And fear or pride will set in and the self-centeredness and the self-pity, will co- it will consume you altogether. That's what he's saying. You can't just try to do it. Patience and kindness. You start out with patience and kindness. You're on a treadmill. Imagine yourself on a treadmill as you read this. You're practicing patience and kindness. It's a push, but you're, you know, you got to work at it, but you're doing it. But all of a sudden, the, the treadmill starts to incline. And he says, well, you can't envy, you can't boast, there's no arrogance, there's no rudeness. Oh boy, you realize you're climbing up a mountain. It's not just a treadmill. Now I'm rising up a mountain. And then he says, it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but it always rejoices with the truth now. And then you get to this insurmountable climax to the mountain, the apex of the mountain. He says, love always bears. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes to the end, always hopes, always endures. Who can do that? Who has done that? Who can do that? You're climbing up an insurmountable mountain here. I'm going to give you another example. If you're a person... Um, you know, in a relationship right now, in a committed relationship right now. And uh, your spouse or the significant other comes to you and says, why do you love me? You've asked yourselves, each other, at some point in your life, you've probably asked somebody that in your life, maybe your parents or your significant other, why do you love me? 
And if they're being honest, if you think about what we today, the conversations that we share with each other, if you think about in our circles, what do we honor in other people? You know, if, you know the moment you say, you know, I, I met somebody today, and they say, oh, you did? What's he like? What's she like? What's the first thing you say? Oh, he's a lawyer at, in Center City. And he works out. He's very, very in shape. He's a good-looking guy. That's how, how men talk. Um, men don't, are not that refined. Um, if someone were to come to you, let's come back to the actual analogy, um, because we measure, we tend, the whole point of that is we tend to measure people based on what they do, how they look, right? Um, you, know, you know, somebody comes to you and says, you know, why do you love me? And you say, well, if you're being honest, you say, well, you know, because take what you said in your little circles and now you come back and you're honest now to this person. Why do you love me? You say, well, you know, you're a smart guy and that means that, you know, you have a nice job and that means you have a great salary and if great salary means, hey, wealth for you, we get married, that's wealth for me. And, you, and, you know, so your brains can be put to work uh, for my benefit. And also, you also have a very good figure. On the other hand, you know, men, you, know, you have a very good figure. And when I'm around women with very good figures and they dote on me, it makes me feel good about myself, actually. And I get to walk around and parade everybody and say, hey, look who I found. And it makes me feel good. How soft is that? How, how heartwarming is that to you? You would slap the person. If I said that, you would, you would slap me and, and right, you should, because that isn't love. That isn't love. You know, if I said, you know, the reason why I love you is you have nice looks, you have a nice brain, uh, I'm going to have a nice lifestyle, then I'm going to feel good about myself, then I'm going to have security, then I can boast about my life and about what I have. How would you respond to that? If those are the reasons, you're never going to be long-suffering. You know why? Because number one, we all get fat, and men, eventually we lose our hair. Um, we're, you're never going to be long-suffering, you're never going uh, to always be trusting. You get that? Who can do that? Who can do that? Who has done that? Somebody has done that. Real love develops when you meet love. Paul doesn't say, here are 10 steps to becoming uh, a better loving person. He doesn't say that. He says, love is a power. Love is a person that changes you. It's not something you do. It's a power that you encounter. It's a person that you encounter. It's personified. We learn to love how? Because we've been the objects of love. We were once objects of wrath, but we're objects of love. It's not something that just a mother does. It's not just something that a father does. It's not, something, it's not a give or take between mother and father to child. It's something that we all experience and we need to experience. We need to encounter it. It's a powerful experience, so powerful that it's going to shape your life. It's going to shape your practice. So if you're going to rise from just seeing as a set of, an abstract set of rules to another plane, you need to experience it. And the, great, the beauty of the gospel is you can't experience it. You know, Paul's not trying to be cute here. He's not trying to be cute. He's not trying to paint this like, you know, lovey-dovey picture of love. That's not what he's doing. He's personifying it. If verse 4 to 7, for instance, is just an abstract model that we're all supposed to follow, if, you're, if it's just asking us to imagine uh, an example of someone who's perfectly loving, just imagine this person who's loving and try to be like that person, then we would say, I could never do that. You would try to do it and you would fail and you would get depressed and you know what's going to happen? The fear and the pride and the self-centeredness and the self-pity. It will continue on and you'd be crushed by that. Your imagination will crush you. But Paul isn't doing that. 
Paul says, you know, I'm personifying love for you. And I have a real person to introduce to you. He says, you know, love suffers long. He's pointing to Jesus, who said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm suffering here. He says, love keeps no record of wrongs. He's pointing to Jesus, who said on the cross, Father, even as they're spitting, even as they're beating him, even as they're hurling insults at him, even as they're mocking him, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. He says, love always protects. He's thinking about the one who says, it is finished. And he died. He died for his people to protect his people. Here is Jesus. He's all God. And yet he becomes powerless, and he becomes tortured, and he's penniless, and he's friendless, and he becomes fatherless. Why? Just before he dies, he says what? It is finished. He's penniless, and he's fatherless, and he's homeless, and he's suffering. And just before he dies, he says, I've done it. It's done. To the end. To the end, he says. He took our place perfectly. Jesus refused to die until he finished what he came to do for us. And he persevered to the end. He wasn't going to let himself die until the, everything that had to be done to seal it perfectly was done perfectly. And when he did it all, Hebrews chapter 12 says, he endured the cross, suffered its shame, scorned its shame for the joy that was set before him. What, he, what that means is on the cross, everyone's screaming, everyone's screaming. God has turned away. The clouds have rolled in. There's an earthquake. There's a storm. People are wailing, crying. People are hurling insults at him. There's a person on the cross that's hurling insults at him. And yet he says, yes, now I'm satisfied. It's done for his people. He's personified love. That's love. That is love. Can you taste that love? Can you marinate in that love? Can you do that? You got to do that. Because if you do, your fears are going to go away. The pride's going to go away. You're no longer going to care. If you have that kind of love, what kind of confidence will you have? Then you can say, does it really matter that this person thinks poorly of me? Does it really matter? That may bruise in you a tremendous confidence on one hand, and yet, because you did nothing to earn it, You're not going to say, yeah, I don't care about what you think of me. You can actually reach out and love them too. That's an amazing thing. That's a transforming love. It's going to humble you. He loved you in spite of your brokenness. And that's going to take away the self-centeredness. That's going to take away the envy and the boasting and the fear and the pride and the arrogance and the rudeness and and all the the, the pent-up aggression and anger that we sometimes bear. It's going to take it away. All the irritability, irritability, and the boastfulness and the resentfulness, you can rejoice in truth. You can rejoice in truth, even if sometimes that truth is going to hurt you. You can rejoice in it. Because he promises to build you up. Remember the word of encouragement? I will build you back up, he says. You're broken. Good. That means you finally let go, and you see yourself for who you are now. Let me, in my love, build you back up. The gospel, if you, if you love, if you try to practice love, out of an abstract, 
uh, uh, model of love. It's going to lead you to pride and fear. But if you look to Jesus, it's going to destroy your fear and pride. Do you see that? Do you get that? It's going to change you and relieve you. It's going to comfort you and transform you. It's an amazing thing. The gospel gives you everything you need to live. Everything you need to live. There's a dynamic power in our lives that if you just take it in and if you experience it, you'll know. You'll know because it's the end of anger. It's the end of fear. It's the end of pride. It's going to be the end of all the things that keep you actually from genuinely loving another person because you're already accepted. You're already loved and that is power. Do you see that? Do you get that? This week, uh, I know from the moment we close in prayer, you will be tempted again, you know, to look at another person and scorn them. What's it going to take for that hardness to melt? Will you remember? It doesn't take work. You can't try because that's not genuine. Now, the Bible says even if you, you you know, even if you, you, you know, you know you can't do it, you know, we're still called to do it. The only way that you can genuinely love is if you remember The Bible calls us to remember. Just recall, remember, let the love of God embrace you and overwhelm you to a degree that just completely blows your perspective out of proportion so that you can look with joy when you are suffering, you know, even if the suffering is momentary. Don't say, oh, this is so petty. What's wrong with me? That's self-pity. That's self-pity too. It's another form of it. In your life, it's serious. Just don't shrink your life to the, to the size of those problems. Look to what Christ has done and let that love envelop you and embrace you and transform you. And you can practice that today, starting today. Will you commit to that? Not in a moral way, not in a religious way. Will you commit to that because your heart has been melted into the love of Christ? We'll start with that. Let's start by responding to the Lord in our love for him because of his great love for us. Let's pray.